got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 17. Um, We've had a bit of a break over Christmas, and now we're kind of getting back into the series that we started in the fall that we never quite got to finishing. And so the next two weeks, we're just finishing up something that we've been working on for a while, which was really asking a question of the Gospel of John. What does it look like, or what does it mean to be followers of Jesus? In other words, we're not assuming that we've got this all figured out and we could write the book. We're actually going to God's Word and saying... What do you tell us it means? And as we've done that, I, for myself anyway, some of the answers have been different than what I would have expected. I mean, not surprising because I've read the Bible, but, but it's maybe not what you would have put on a short list of like, what are the top ten things you need to know in following Jesus? Instead, we see things like that discipleship or following Jesus, is about, it's about truth. Like fundamentally, it's about truth. We've seen things like, the fact that it's a matter of life and death according to God's word, that there's an urgency to this thing, that it's actually God's work more than it is our work, which is a a fascinating thing to turn around and to wrestle with and chew on a little bit. We've seen that this whole thing of following Jesus is immensely costly, and yet at the same time, the moment we start talking about cost, there's almost this, this tug back in the other direction that says, in light of what we gain, there's no cost. We've seen that it's a matter of affection. It's certainly truth, but it's also something that's going to change our very affections, the core of who we are, and it happens as we abide in Christ and as the Holy Spirit fills us and as we walk with Christ in a, in a life that's just flavored by servanthood. And so we've kind of wrestled with some of those things. This morning we want to wrestle with yet another one that I'll just state so we know where I'm going, and then we're going to look through John 17. And here it is. If you want to follow Jesus, understand that you are sent. That being a follower of Jesus is not just for you. It is, but it's a bigger matter than that. Being a follower of Jesus is something that is also for this world. Now, I'm going to get that out of John chapter 17, which is a passage of Scripture known as the High Priestly Prayer. In fact, if you have little headings in your Bible... That's probably what the heading says, the high priestly prayer. It's the only time this prayer is recorded. This is Jesus, perhaps at one of the most vulnerable, sort of intimate moments as he speaks with his father. I don't know what it would feel like if, if sort of this whole room of people could hear you pray. It'd be a little intimidating, wouldn't it? I think we'd wrestle with, on the one hand, it's like, I don't know that I would want everyone to hear the deepest longings of my heart expressed before God, that would be one fear. On the other hand, uh, the other fear would be, well, I don't know that I'd want everyone to hear, hear how sometimes how, how weak and shallow my prayers are. But here in John 17, we almost get to eavesdrop on an amazing conversation that Jesus will have with his Father. And as we do, we learn some things that are closest to his heart. In fact, it's interesting, this passage uh, has been preached many, many times. Uh, One of the most famous is a series of 45 sermons. Can you imagine that if we did, it's like, hey, for the next year, essentially, we're just going to be in John 17. I mean, that's, that would be interesting. But Thomas uh, Manton did it Many, many years ago, he preached 45 sermons just on this one chapter. But the one I love most is actually John Knox as he died. He was the Scottish reformer. As he was dying, he had his wife read one chapter of Scripture over and over and over until literally he entered into the presence of Jesus. And it was said that the verse that he loved most was verse 24, which says this, Father, this is Jesus praying, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. What an incredible 
statement. I know I've often thought of this verse as we've prayed for people who are in sort of dire medical situations, cancers, heart attacks, those kind of things, where we're looking and saying, Lord, would you heal this person? In the back of my head, there's this often this little voice that just comes back to this passage and says, you know what? One day, Jesus' prayer is going to trump ours. We can pray for healing and we can pray for life to be extended, but one day, Jesus is going to get his way. We are going to be with him forever, seeing his glory. And so, for me, this has been a verse that I've just, I don't know, I found a strange, joyful sort of complexity as I wrestle through this verse. But I want to just direct your thoughts to this statement for a moment, because it's actually the only time in all of Scripture we have a clear recorded statement of what Jesus' desire is which is a fascinating thing, of course. We see other times what Jesus wills and what he does, but here it's actually a word that goes beyond just willing or decision. This is actually a word that speaks to his, his preference. It's what he is inclined to want. It's, it's not just a, a weak thing. It's actually a very strong preference. It's, the word desire is actually a great word to describe it. You want to know what Jesus wants? He wants you to be with him forever. That's what he wants. Now I, I take that thought and I marry it to, say, a place like James 5. I think it's verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man. Forgive me because I've been around church for a while. Availeth much is how I remember. remember. I, I think modern translations say the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I want to pose you a question. If, if that is true, which I believe it is because it's in Scripture, and if Jesus is a righteous man, which I also believe he is because he is sinless, the unique one and only son of God. And if we know from John chapter 17 verse 24 that his desire, the deep, profound longing of his heart. In fact, Robert McShane, who is a great preacher from long ago, he said this of that statement. In truth, Christ cannot lack you. You are his jewel, his crown. Heaven would be no heaven to him if you were not there. I mean, wow. That borderline almost on too strong. But if that's true, that a righteous man's prayer is powerful and effective, and Jesus is a righteous man, and his prayer is that you would be with him, can I ask you a question this morning? Why has it not happened yet? I mean, we're here. Now, in a sense, I would agree that Jesus is with us. We know he's with us always. But in another very important sense, biblically, we know that there is something yet to happen. One day we will stand face to face with Jesus Christ. We will literally and fully be with him forever. Have you ever asked yourself why this prayer then has not been fulfilled? I mean, there must be something. I mean, if you had infinite power and you were good, so your inclinations, your desires were good, and you had infinite power to accomplish them, would you not think whatever you most desired would have come to pass. So the question we want to wrestle with today is, why has it not? And John 17 is going to give us an answer, a profoundly important answer that, that affects how we understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So in order to kind of unpack this answer, we're going to try to quickly work our way through the whole chapter, which is which is going to be a bit of a, a heavy lifting task here. We're going to move fairly quickly, and we're going to move quickly through some very important things. And the fact that we're going to move quickly through them doesn't mean they're unimportant. It's just we're going to have to move quickly to 
to see how this chapter unfolds. Now, thankfully, the chapter is put together in a nice, sort of neat structure for people who like this kind of thing. Verse 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verse 6 to 19, he prays for his followers who are there with him at that very moment. So there are 11 disciples who are gathered around. And then verse 20 to 26, he prays for all those who will believe through them, which is you which is actually every Christian who has ever lived in every place. And so we get this one incredible moment in the New Testament where Jesus actually prays for you. So we're going to look through those three things and see what John 17 leads us to think about what is so important that Jesus would set aside his ultimate desire in order to accomplish. All right. Now, in verse 1 to 5, as I mentioned, Jesus prays for himself, and he's going to pray that he would be glorified, which sounds on the one hand, if, if we were to suggest that or say that, it would sound very egotistical, but remember who we're talking about. We're talking about the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's nothing inappropriate about that one seeking his glory. But what's really interesting is if you start to wrestle through Scripture, what does it mean for Jesus to seek his glory? When he says, Father, glorify your Son, that's his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What does that mean? Like what has to happen for that prayer request to come true? Now, if we were to spend a whole bunch of time and wrestle through all of Scripture, it would boil down to something like this. Jesus is asking that God would reveal Him to the world. In other words, the glory of Jesus is the unveiling of who He is. And as a consequence, Jesus is saying, I also want then to be able to, to unveil who you are to the world. That's what it would mean for Jesus to be ultimately glorified. That, that who he is would be clear and known. And of course, we, we see through a glass dimly, don't we? We don't see the full glory of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, here's my first request for myself, that you would be glorified, Father. That I would be glorified, which means... Who God is, it's going to have to be seen. Which is interesting, because look where he goes in verse 2. He starts to speak of the fact that he will be the one who's going to save and redeem this world. It's not hard to put the pieces together, is it? Because what that means is Jesus is saying, the moment I go to the cross, this hour. So that, that's, that's how he refers to the cross. This hour that he was, he was born for will be the pinnacle moment where the glory of God is revealed, where the essence of who God is will be seen. In other words, you want to know the character of God? You want to know the God that you believe in? Look at the cross, meditate on it, come to understand what's happening at the cross, and you're going to know God. See, at the cross, you get the holiness of God on full display. You get the justice of God. God's not going to just sort of skirt sin, brush it aside as though it doesn't matter. It is deadly serious. And yet, at the same time, you get the mercy and compassion and love of God. You get the faithfulness of God. You get the power of God to defeat sin and death. You get all of who God is coming together at this one moment. And Jesus says, I was born for this moment. And at this moment, I will be glorified. And my Father will be glorified through me because you're going to finally be able to see who he is. Now, that's Jesus' first request. By the way, I would just point out that there's a pattern to, to this whole process of prayer that I'd like to just point out briefly to those of you who, who teach, who lead small groups, who teach youth, who lead Sunday school classes. And that is, throughout Scripture, the pattern that we often see is people speak 
to people about God, and then they speak to God about people. So you see it through the prophets. I, I made the claim in the early service. I'd have to, I would actually have to go back and just confirm, but I'm pretty sure it's a unanimous, 100% of the time, true thing that the prophets would speak to people about God, and it's recorded there, you can read it, and then they would go and they would speak to God about the people. There's, there's constantly that back and forth. They speak, and then they talk to God. And you see it here in Jesus. He spent his ministry speaking to people about God, and now he comes before his Father, and he speaks to his Father about people. You see it in Acts chapter 6. This becomes the pattern of the early church. They speak to people about God, and then they talk to God about people. And I hope as you're teaching and as you're leading and as you're doing those things that you don't forget that second part, that you, yes, definitely talk to people about God, but don't, don't forget to come before your Father and speak to Him about those very people that you have talked to. That's the first part of the prayer. Jesus prays for his own glory. And just because of the, the speed we need to move, we're going to move on from this part into the second part, which goes from 6 to 19. And uh, in 6 to 19, he prays for a specific group of people. And I've heard it argued that pretty much everything he prays for this specific group of people in 6 to 19, he also prays for us in 20 to 26. And so it's not an unfair thing to, to think in terms of sort of personal application to this. I'd have to wrestle with that a little bit more to confidently say that's rightly handling God's word. But I think it's probably fairly accurate. But before we jump into what he actually asks for them in verse 11, Jesus spends uh, verse 6 to 10 actually explaining who it is he's about to pray for. Now this part is fascinating. It doesn't actually further our cause of understanding why or the answer to this question of why Jesus doesn't get his desire now. But I think it's worth seeing, and so I'm just going to kind of risk going out on a limb of possibly confusing you a little bit for the sake of saying something very important in these verses. I'll read them to you. Verse 6, I have manifest your name to the people. In other words, he's still speaking of this glorifying what he's done. I have manifest, in other words, I have made visible your name. In other words, that's just a way that Jesus uses to describe the character of God. I've made God knowable. I've shown you who he is. He continues, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They've kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, what's he saying? Now, a lot of stuff. I want to suggest at least four things worth really paying attention to in this little section because it really strikes to the heart of who are we? What is our identity? That's why I want to stop here for just a moment because in these little verses, Jesus actually sort of unpacks the doctrine of salvation of how do we get saved? What goes on when someone comes to become a part of the family of God? And he kind of hits at four, four steps, although... When you start talking about steps, it kind of starts making it sound mechanical. But four aspects of it. And he starts with the fact that everyone who is a part of the family of God is chosen by God. You see that in there. It's, they, they were your people. They, they were yours. And, and the rest of Scripture backs this up. In fact, God chose them, chose us, if you're a follower of Jesus, from before time began. That's the first thing Jesus points to. He goes on then and he says, okay, secondly, 
God has chosen us. And if you go look at a place like John chapter 6, Jesus has already talked about this in John 6 where he talks about, then the Father takes us and teaches us who Jesus is. It's a fascinating verse. Go read it there in John 6. Jesus says that's what the Father does. He teaches his own who Jesus is. And then the next step is Jesus comes and he teaches us who the Father is and he, we, we receive as a gift eternal life. Jesus says that's the second thing that happens. He actually comes back to this point four times in two verses. So he wants us to make sure we get it. Chosen by God. God helps us understand who Jesus is. Jesus reveals who his Father is so that we would receive this gift of salvation. That's that that next step there is Jesus reveals the Father to us. If you look in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people. Which people? Well, it's the people who belong to God, who he gave to his son, who his son saved, who then the son revealed the father to you. Start to see how the son and father are, are working together on this incredible plan to reveal God to you. It's the last step, which is kind of the one where you, we usually start. And the last step is the faith part for us. He gets to it in a few different ways in verse 7 and 8 where he talks about these have accepted your words or they believe that you've sent me. In other words, Jesus says the final step in this whole salvation process is us believing. And I just want to point that out because I think for us, for me, I won't point the finger at any of you. For, for me, it's easy to start thinking that the beginning point of salvation is me believing in God. And then I come to a passage like this where Jesus says, I want to just, I want you to understand some things. That's the last step. The final step was, or sorry, the first step was the work of God and the work of his son to save that brings us to the point where we would believe and put our faith in him. Now, why does any of that matter? Why would I risk confusing or bringing us away from the main question this morning? I think it's because knowing our identity really does matter. Hey, if you're saved, if I'm saved on the strength of my faith and belief, like I, I put my salvation on my back and it's like I chose God and I will be saved as long as I am strong enough and fast enough and faithful enough. We got problems. I have problems. In fact, I can 100% tell you I won't make it. But if my salvation is a work of God and he loves me enough to have done that, that profoundly affects not just my confidence and my hope, profoundly affects my identity. I'm one who is loved by God. In fact, look at the very last verse of this chapter as Jesus wraps up this prayer. And he says, that the love with which you have loved them may, or sorry, loved me may be in them. You'd be well served to spend a week or two thinking of that statement. The same love, Jesus says, that God has for his son is the love he has for you. Have you ever felt the love of God with that kind of weight to it and Jesus says you need to know who you are profoundly loved by God all right back to our back to our question that was a little diversion hope I didn't lose too many of you. if I did it's okay just look at verse 11 we're back on track verse 11 is where Jesus starts to make the requests on behalf of these people who are who are followers who are disciples and here's the request he makes I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. So he's speaking of the fact he's going to die, he's going to rise, and he's going to ascend to heaven. That's what he's referring to. Holy Father, keep them in your name, with which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, this is verse 12, I kept them in your name, 
which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction. He's speaking of Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, there's a whole lot, again, packed into that prayer, that request. Um, there's a slogan, turns out. I actually thought it was a, I will admit, I was looking through scripture this week. It's like, okay, it's not John 17. It must be somewhere else. The slogan is that we are in the world, but not of the world. Anyone heard this? First service had quite a few people. It's like, oh, yeah. Did you know it's not a Bible verse? It's just a slogan? Maybe on a coffee cup or a nice plaque? It's a good slogan, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the bad side of it in just a second. The good side of it is this recognition that we are to be separate. We're to be different. The world is not called to live in holiness the way we are. That's what the slogan gets at. It's this affirmation that we are, we are in this mess together but we're supposed to be different. But it's just a slogan. And here's the downside of the slogan. The slogan makes it sound like the whole goal of the Christian life is to to be removed. It's almost like this begrudging recognition. It's like, ah, we're in the world. Terrible place to be. It's just awful and gross, and there's lots of parts where that's certainly true. But Oh, don't we wish we could be out of the world? And so the calling is, whew, we get to get out of the world because that's what Jesus wants for us. In the world, but not of the world. But did you hear what Jesus said as we read through that prayer? Because Jesus used a lot of those phrases. In fact, this is where those phrases come from, to be put together to build the slogan. And the problem is, when Jesus prays, that's not what he asks. In fact, here's what Jesus says. He says it twice. You are already not of the world. You're not. It's accomplished. You're part of the family and the kingdom of God. Now, do we wrestle with sin? Yes, and that's, that's a separate discussion. That's actually not what Jesus is talking about so much here in this passage. He's going to talk about the fact that when we, when we want to be cleaned and sanctified and made holy, we do it by coming to God's word. So that, I'm not denying that. I'm not belittling that. That's important. But it's not the pressing concern of John 17. Jesus says, my followers are not of the world. And when I was with them, I have been able to guard them. Because when you're not of the world and you're in the world, you're in a dangerous spot. The world is against you. And so Jesus' prayer is, Father, I'm about to leave. I'm asking that you would protect them. Because they're not of the world, but they are in the world. And it's a step beyond that. Not only are they in the world, but I am actively sending them into the world. That's the point of Jesus' prayer. It's like this is dangerous, dangerous territory we're about to consider here. They're not of the world, so they're not allied with, they're not friends of the world, but I'm going to send them into the world. It's very different than the slogan, isn't it? In the world, but not of the world. It's like (laughs) maybe the slogan ought to be not of the world, but sent into the world. You get how that's different? It's a totally different mandate. It's a mandate that still says, yes, holiness matters. 
Yes, we're not to just do the things that the world would do in terms of behavior and attitudes and affections and all those kind of things. But your mission is not just to keep yourself separate and pure and, and untainted by being removed. Your mission is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to go into the world with a message that will transform the world. Listen to how he says it in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And just in case you missed it, if you go to the last chapter of John, Jesus ends the gospel this way. Much like the gospel of Matthew ends with what we call the Great Commission. You know, go into all the world. John ends with a very similar commission. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. That's why he prays for protection for his followers. Because this is a dangerous, dangerous task. Now I've spent about two months, I said in the early service, wrestling with a single word. It's sort of one of the things that I do. I kind of, I don't think it's actually all that healthy all the time. The word that I've been wrestling with is the word as. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. It's like, well, as compares two things. It, it holds them up and says, Consider the similarities. Maybe also consider the differences. So, so my, my last two months have been spent asking myself, in what way have you and I been sent into the world that is comparable or similar to the way in which Jesus was sent in the world? Because there are some differences. Jesus is the Son of God who existed forever on a throne in heaven and came from heaven to earth. You didn't. But there is something that Jesus is pointing to that is comparable. Now, I know you're sitting there, it's like, what is it? I don't know, I've been working for two months. No, a couple things. Let me just, let me point you, because I don't think it would be accurate to be able to say I have this, I have the clear, 100% certain answer, but can I point you in a couple directions that I have very, very strong hunches about? First one is this. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we actually find the same word. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might save the world through him. Is it possible that we are also sent into the world with a purpose of seeing salvation? Because I think that's a part of it, an aspect of it. Not that we are the saviors, we are the messengers. If you see in verse 20, look what Jesus says now. Next, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words... I'm going to send my disciples out. They're sent into the world. They're going to say some things about me that are true. And if you're wondering, it's not up to you to make up things. You go and you find out what the gospel is. Places like 1 John 15 will tell you clearly what the gospel message is. We go. We communicate this message. God opens eyes to it. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's referred to multiple times in Scripture. If you want to just read it, you go read 1 Peter. Peter talks about it. Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about it there. You go read Acts. The whole book of Acts is basically a story of men and women just like us going out in the world and saying, here's who Jesus is, here's what the gospel is, and people having their eyes opened by a miraculous work of God coming to believe in Jesus. That's the saving work. But that's what we're called to do. That's what we're sent to do. As Jesus came and did that and communicated truth, we come and do the same. But I think there's another side to this. And here's... Here's where my thinking has landed. If you go read a place like Philippians chapter 2, you're going to read a clear, vivid description of how Jesus came into this world. And the description is that he would give up all his glory and all his standing, and he would empty himself, humble himself, and be made nothing, 
to come and serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, your life's not going to be ransomed for many. Jesus did that part. But in my reading, Paul says we're to go in a similar way. Go read the start. That's the whole point of Philippians 2. It's not just a description of Jesus. It's a pattern that Jesus lays down that all of us as his followers would go and do likewise. As the Father sent me, so I send you. The Father sent me on a mission to redeem this world, and he sent me in loneliness and humility. And I think that's the as. We are being sent in a similar fashion. There's a fascinating parable told. It's recorded in all the Gospels except John, interestingly enough. It's Mark 12, uh, Matthew 21, Luke 20, I think it is. It's a story of a wealthy landowner, and uh, he rents out his land, and then it's time for the rent to be paid, and he sends a servant, and they refuse to pay. And in all three recordings, we get to the same final moment where the wealthy landowner says, I know what I'll do. I will send my beloved son. And the son is sent and the son is killed. Now the context of all three parables is judgment. So I'm not ignorant to that fact, but I can't help but see in that parable such a clear, clear description of exactly what God has done in sending his beloved son. He would die, that we could be saved. Now if I haven't convinced you yet, then you could go and read other passages of scripture like Luke Chapter 11, verse 49, that says, The wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill. Isn't that a great verse? That's, that's not on coffee cups. It's on no calendars that I've ever seen. Just, but just stop long enough to think of what Luke's told us. I, God says, in my wisdom, will send men and women some of them they will kill. That is the wisdom of God. And if you don't see that, you are not going to be equipped to go and follow Jesus and do what he's calling us to in John 17. Now, that's the as. Let's keep going because we're not to the end of the prayer here yet. In fact, we're now to the last part where Jesus specifically prays for us. You see there in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We're still trying to get to the point where we say, what is it that was so important that Jesus was willing to set aside his desires to accomplish? And we're going to get there now in this last part of the prayer. So now he's praying for us. Here we are, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I read it one more time. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. There it is. He's going to go on. He's going to repeat it, in case there's slow learners like me. He's going to say essentially the same thing. He's going to continue on. The glory you've given me that I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me. You hear what's going on here? Jesus is saying there is an incredible plan. A plan that I guess humanly speaking, I would use the word, is so audacious that it will be unmistakable when it's accomplished. You see, everyone longs for unity. 
We do. It is as old as the opening pages of Scripture. You just go read some of those early stories. There's just this human longing for unity and togetherness. And in our sinfulness, we just keep messing it up. But the longing's there. Our best attempts usually look at us being united and connected to people who are like us. Because that's our best attempt. And even then, it's a weak, tends to be quite fractured attempt. So we, we hang out with people that dress like us. We, we spend time with people that look like us. We gather in little clusters that kind of feel similar enough that we can have some sort of small taste of this. And in, even in those best attempts of human unity, we mess it up. And so Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do. Because everyone's going to know how impossible this will be. I'm going to stake the truth of the message on the unity of my people. Because when that's accomplished, there will not be a person on this planet that will be able to say, oh, well, you just, anyone can do that. Because that's not true. Look around even a church like ours. I mean, we're in a, a fairly sort of, sort of typical community here in BC. Yeah, I look around, I know some of your stories. There's, there is variety in this church. I know it every time I get an email and someone will say, hey, what about this thing? And I know when they say it, it's very well-intentioned, but they just assume everyone thinks the same way they do. <laughs> and what's often funny is oftentimes in the very same day I'll get another email with the exact opposite perspective. And I think to myself, and I've said to you so many times, I am amazed at the miracle that Emmanuel is. The fact that this church is unified is nothing short of the supernatural work of God. It's what makes the gospel believable. Because Jesus Christ has staked everything on unity. Now, there are people who take this and twist it and do all sorts of funny things. They say, well, just scrap truth because all that matters is unity. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying scrap truth. He's like, we've got truth and we never abandon truth. But in that truth, we stay unified. Now, as I start thinking this through, I, I think to myself, if this is going to be something that the world sees that becomes then a, a confirming thing for the truth of the gospel, then unity must be visible. It must not just be something that's on a piece of paper that we all agree to. Now, those things aren't bad. We have those things as a church family, things that we sort of say together, okay, here's what we believe together, and here's how we're going to do church life together. But the rest of the world doesn't look and say, can I see your documents? And then based on the documents go, oh, the gospel's true. There's no way that's how it works. It has to be more than that. It has to be that the world will look at a church full of people who are not all the same, who are different, who still love one another and care for one another and extend grace to one another. It's actually been said that the biggest barrier to evangelism, it's not, it's not the message. In fact, I, I think you could even go and test this one out. You go and you ask, a bunch of people who are not followers of Jesus, who, who won't come to church and hear about God, you ask them why. My guess is that most of them are not going to say, you know what, it's the message. <laughs> they probably don't even know what the message is. What they will say is, oh, I knew a Christian once. Oh, I work with. Oh, my day. Oh, I've got a cousin. What are they saying? 
They're saying they have looked at the body of Christ and concluded that the message isn't worth listening to because the lives aren't confirming it. Bruce Milne says evangelism is a community act. It's the proclamation of our relationship as well as our conviction. And our relationship either commends the gospel to people or repels people. There is no other possibility. Jesus prays that his church will be united so that as we're sent into this world, there will be a compelling message that, yes, is propositional truth about who Jesus is that is backed up and affirmed because our lives have been changed. Jesus gets to the end of this prayer. It's a spectacular ending. I want you to see it just because it's too good to miss. Verse 26, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known. Jesus is at work. If you feel like we're going to be sent out into this world on our own, it's intimidating, and we're flawed and below average, and we're never going to be able to accomplish this, just remember that the one who sends us, who commissions us, also promised he would be with us. That's what he's doing, making his Father known through us. And so, Emmanuel, as you think of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, understand that you are sent by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not alone, with him, to proclaim a message, and to authenticate it by living in unity with one another.